This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, down in Lyme Regis. We've been doing the show from the beautiful sunny south coast, which has been very nice. Uh, You can listen back to that on the uh, Times Radio app. You can listen back to the show if you want. But because it's Friday, of course, on the podcast, we bring you the very latest episode in our series, The Sunday Shows at 50. Twenty-two marks 50 years since the launch of Weekend World, the flagship Sunday political programme which paved the way for everyone that followed. It kick-started a broadcasting arms race, which meant that often what happened on the Sunday sofa was more important than what happened in the Houses of Parliament. This is the story of how political and journalistic careers were made and broken, even how elections were won and lost. Last week, we went on the record with the BBC show, which lasted from 1988 to 2002. This week, as we enter the new century, we witness an explosion of political shows on a Sunday. Hello and good afternoon. Welcome. Good morning. Hello and welcome. Good morning. Television is like a jungle. Lots of different programmes struggling to survive, trying to find a new way into the light. And by the mid-noughties, there were an awful lot of political shows. Do you remember these? was the Sunday programme, Sunday with Adam Bolton, The Politics Show, The Sunday Politics and Jonathan Dimbleby. For the politicians of the day, they felt they had a responsibility to appear on all of them. William Hague. Announcements made on Monday morning have become very important. Our listeners will have noticed that often very big government announcements that are trying to grab the agenda. They come out on Monday mornings to try and set the agenda for the week. But the additional way, the way you uh, strengthen that is on Sunday, you're teeing that up. You are setting the scene for your Monday or Tuesday announcement. And uh, you're getting out of the way your response to all the difficult things might have happened in the Sunday newspapers. So if you're running your 24-hour news tactics of a modern political party, you definitely need someone out there on the Sunday morning airwaves. 
and there was no shortage of big beast presenters all showing their bite. Some people would say, well, what's an election campaign about if you can't slag off your opponent? <laughs> Why your party members might be fed up with Labour making alliances with, with Bush, with Aznar, with Berlusconi, all these right-wing leaders. Do you think that it'll make a big difference, the summary shuffle? We have an idiot Freedom on the programme today. Now, one of the key ways these Sunday political shows competed to be king of the jungle was to get journalists to write about them. And this is where I come into the story. When I first started working in Westminster in 2005, it was part of my job to monitor them. And it was possible to watch some form of Sunday TV show from around 7 in the morning until well after lunchtime, sometimes more than one at once. The day started with the Sunday programme. GMTV's contractual obligation to provide a political show that went out at 7am. From October 1994, it was presented by Alastair Stewart. Mr Haig, do you accept that your job is on the line within the party at those elections? No. No, no. And when it launched in an already crowded market, it was a straw that broke the camel's back for the journalist Steve Richards. I wrote a column saying, this is getting silly. There are now so many Sunday programmes, they're going to run out of interviewees. They couldn't all have the same politicians. So you had about 50 politicians working on a Sunday uh, doing these programmes. And it actually made the politicians seem more important than they really were. Alistair Stewart quit the early morning ITV chair in 2001. They needed a new presenter with a bit of attitude. And they chose the man who'd said there were too many politics shows, Steve Richards. Welcome back to GMTV. The weird thing about all these political shows in the early noughties is they came at a time when politics was, well, a bit boring. Throughout the late 90s and early noughties, New Labour were unassailable. And the main topic of conversation was who would succeed Tony Blair. In 2007, Steve Richards chaired a long debate on the Sunday programme with three Labour stalwarts, Tony Benn, Roy Hattersley and David Owen. The only senior cabinet figure uh, putting himself forward is, is Gordon Brown. Tony, do you think others... It would be a good thing for the Labour Party and arguably the country if others put themselves forward as people did in 76? Well, the Liberals elected a new leader, the Tories elected a new leader, and if Labour MPs, by declining to nominate an alternative, allow a new leader to emerge unelected, it will utterly destroy his authority. Every possible pressure was put on me as, uh, in the SDP not to have an election and to crown Roy Jenkins. And I fought him, and I'm extremely glad I fought him, and I think it was good for the SDP. But, it would be but good I for think Gordon it would Brown be a good thing challenged. for him if he defeated a real opponent rather than was crowned, as somebody said the other day, as if, it were, if he were a monarch rather than a party leader. Big-name politicians weren't always keen about appearing on TV live at 7am, so would pre-record interviews instead. Steve Richards found that sometimes away from a live studio, he'd find out even more about the political big beasts of the day, like when he was summoned to number 11 one Friday afternoon by Gordon Brown. It was in advance of the debate on tuition fees, and no-one knew which way Brown was going to go uh, or was going to tell his people to vote. We went in there and we were warned that um, things were so tense, Gordon might be tricky. But and then he walked in and sort of laughed, embraced each of us and just said he couldn't help himself. I hear it's been a difficult week for Tony. 
and he was on a sort of absolute kind of uncontrollable, uncharacteristic high. One Sunday morning in July 2006, I was watching the Sunday programme from home while working for the Press Association. I heard Steve start to introduce Frank Dobson, who at the time was becoming a thorn in Tony Blair's side. Later that year, he would call for Tony Blair to step down. In my rush to get to the screen to turn the volume up, I caught my foot on the coffee table. I hobbled into the office, monitored all the shows and only went to A&E on my way home where they confirmed my toe was broken. I think that says more about your dedication than the fascination of Frank Dobson's uh, words as an interviewee. But not every guest was quite as newsworthy. If the editor was worried about getting a guest in, they used to phone Jeremy Corbyn because he was nearby and he was always happy to come in. And uh, Central Office, because it was seven in the morning, did sometimes struggle to get shadow cabinet members to do it. Theresa May would always do it. So quite often at seven in the morning, we would have uh, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn on and they would stay for coffee afterwards in the green room. And if somebody had told me then you were sitting with the prime minister and leader of the opposition in whatever year's time, I'd have gone and lie down in a darkened room for about 24 hours. And if you keep listening, you'll hear that on Sunday mornings, Theresa May pops up again and again. Good morning. The Sunday programme continued until 2008, when the rules changed to allow GMTV to quietly replace it with cartoons. That's all, folks. So on an average Sunday in the early part of this century, you could watch the Sunday programme on ITV from 7am, hop over to Breakfast with Frost at 9am. Hello, good morning and welcome. And then slide over to Sky News for Sunday Live with Adam Bolton, which launched in 1994. Hello, this is a Sunday Live special from Washington, D.C. Five years after Sky News launched, they also wanted a piece of the Sunday action. There was a pretty much established format that politicians realised that if they did an interview on a Sunday morning on whichever channel, then that would be picked up by the wires, that would become uh, the fodder for the evening news bulletins and, and for the Sunday for Monday newspapers. And so, you know, that, w- that was the purpose of us doing it, that there was no reason why we should be reporting stories that were being made uh, over on the BBC or, or on ITV. However, Sky News remained a journalistic upstart and had to go to greater lengths to get the big guests. We had to work harder than the BBC, so quite often uh, the best chance of getting the Prime Minister or the leader of the opposition was to go on a location. You know, I remember interviewing uh, Tony Blair at a socialist gathering in Cannes and, and, and things like that. Another time with Tony Blair, we were in St Petersburg, and again, this is when the full argument was underway about weapons of mass destruction, did Saddam Hussein have them and all that? And I, I did an interview. He, he, he claimed that he knew stuff that wasn't in the public domain about Saddam Hussein uh, having weapons of mass destruction, which, of course, turned out to be untrue. But again, it was quite gratifying that someone got a photograph of him heading off to PMQs that week and there was a whole file Mark Bolton <laughs> on top with, with tags as to what he'd said. Tony Blair insists even today that it was important to keep making the case to the public particularly when you've got a very difficult issue. I mean, you know, when I was dealing with really, really difficult issues, some of the reform issues, you know, post 9-11 issues, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on, you know, some of those interviews were very tough and, you know, very intellectually, politically, psychologically testing. 
I, I think it's really important always to explain to people what it is you're trying to do. Another story blew up close to home when in January 2000, Keith Hellowell, a government drugs czar, called for an end to witch hunts of politicians accused of experimenting with drugs before they entered public life. Mo Molam, then a cabinet minister, was booked to appear on Bolton's show. I said to Mo, you know, what about you? And she said, yeah, of course I smoked dope and I inhaled. And it was, it was between us, it was a conversational level. But then for the next three days, all hell broke out. Molan was remembering, of course, Bill Clinton, who said in 1992. I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it, and didn't inhale, and never tried it again. Not every guest was so forthcoming with the news. Yeah, it's that woman again. Good morning. I think my most regular Tory guest uh, was uh, Theresa May, because, you know, we were just down the motorway from uh, Maidenhead, and so she was a minister who was willing to do it. And I have to say, always very good, always answered the, you know, dealt with the, the question of the day. But probably in the entire course of, you know, 10 years of interviews, roughly speaking about once a month, never said anything interesting. Bolton's show lasted for years. It helped give Sky News a much larger profile than you might think its small audience on satellite and cable would deserve. And he continued with the Sunday show until it was taken over by Dermot Murnahan in 2011. This is the Sunday shows at 50. Still to come, how the buttoned up on the record gave way to the tireless politics show, the endless struggle for Sunday morning guests, and Jonathan Dimbleby's imaginatively titled ITV show, Jonathan Dimbleby. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Sunday Shows at 50. This week, taking a look at the explosion in programmes during the early noughties. And after almost a decade and a half on air, it was out with On The Record on BBC One and in with a brand new politics show. New to BBC One now, the politics show with Jeremy Vine. Hello and welcome for the first time to the politics show. The opening titles featured a variety of ordinary people alongside boxy mini-television showing talking mouths. Do you see what they're doing there? Jeremy Vine says it was a straightforward proposition. 
So it had the simplest title ever. And in a way, it was doing a very simple thing. You know, it was just it was just interviewing politicians on the Sunday. And then the good thing about the politics show, the lovely thing was it really did. It was a bit of a Radio 2 vibe in that it did go out to the regions and and sort of out to different neighbourhoods. And it was very much politics as it affects you. I think that was the big change was that it moved away from the Mount Olympus style of broadcasting, which is there's a place called Westminster and very important people are there. And we're going to tell you what they think. And much more to hang on a minute. What are you thinking? Because we've never bothered to ask you. One of the big changes compared to almost all Sunday political shows that went before was the attire. They stopped wearing ties and everyone seemed to be wearing a lilac shirt. Oh, massive change. You know, these things get thought about a lot in the BBC. And somebody said, look, we've got a fantastic idea. Don't wear a tie. And you're right. I didn't wear a tie. And what was odd, though, was that the politicians kept wearing ties. And we, 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 we you know, there's only so many times you can say to them, it's fine not to wear a tie because they, their line is, no, it's fine for you. It's not fine for me because I'm, I'm, I want people who are 65 to vote for me and two people who are 65 expect to tie. It's absolutely bizarre. It still, still pertains even now. Appearing only a couple of hours after Breakfast with Frost and later the Andrew Marr show, but there was always a risk of ending up with the second best politician around. Frost was wired in to the established switchboard. And I'm not that's not a criticism. That's a fantastic thing. It's amazing real estate. Politicians go on it, the newspapers all watch, they're now social media, etc. And you trend for the day, if not the week. And so the show that follows it is in a really difficult spot because the politicians know it's second order. And in the end, that became difficult but it was just that we always felt we were we were taking the crumbs off the table one of the most charismatic politicians of the era was the leader of the lib dems charles kennedy but he also wrestled with alcoholism jeremy vine thought that his problems sometimes leaked onto the screen one of the things that was nice about the vibe on a sunday morning is that you you would get a bit of time with the person in makeup or whatever and you, you it was genuinely good FaceTime. and i remember just being with Charles Kennedy in makeup and, and thinking at the time, this is, this is really sad, actually, just thinking he wasn't in good shape. There was something wrong. I wonder even if, bless him, if, if he might have been under the influence in some way, because obviously we now know that he had a terrible problem with alcohol. And he came through the studio and he just wasn't on his game. And I started on this interview with him about wind turbines and was asking him why the Lib Dems was in, were in favour of wind turbines nationally, but any time, any area, anywhere tried to build any, it was always the Lib- local Lib Dems that opposed it. And I could see it just caught him in the wrong, you know, it was like one of those punches that should, shouldn't be a problem. And it just caught him all wrong and he couldn't answer. And I felt, I genuinely felt really sorry for him, actually. And of course, they could always rely on the Sunday show regular. It's great to be back here. I remember seeing Theresa May in the studio and again having time with her before the show and thinking, gosh, this feels like I'm in a formal situation. There's no small talk at all, you know. After two years, Vine quit and John Sopel took over in autumn 2005. It ran until 2011 when the politics show became the Sunday politics. Nice theme tune, but even with Andrew Neil at the helm, or perhaps because of it, it suffered from the perennial problem of being the second BBC One political show of the day and struggling to get the top names. So they had to look a bit further afield. 
We're joined by Alec Jones, an American shock jock. He's been campaigning for more openness at the Bilderberg Conference. What have I discovered about Bilderberg? The yeah. BBC was able to get the documents decades ago that they helped found the Euro, which was actually a Nazi German plan oh. to take over countries economically. No, that's on record. Hey, listen, what? I'm here to warn people. You keep telling me to shut up. This isn't a game. You are the worst it, person I've ever interviewed. No, no, it's You're watching the Sunday politics. We have an idiot on the program today. You will not stop freedom. You will not stop the republic. Humanity is awakening. Infowars.com. No, you guys are crazy. I'll be looking at the week the ahead with our political stupid. panel. You're Until crazy. then, the think Sunday the politics across the You're UK. The At the same time, Steve up. Richards had gone from presenter back to regular Sunday show panellist. That was about the fourth programme of the morning. And you had the absurd situation of the mighty Andrew Neal. You know, the, the, the most formidable interviewer of the lot was left with some poor sod who nobody had heard of, you know, because these programmes eat up interviewees. Plucking a name at complete random, here's Andrew Neil having Lucy Powell for lunch. Much, much deeper and much greater right. than ours. And that they will be deeper. Uh, well, no, I am. Yes, but I am. But yeah, I am. But I am. No, but I am. That's not the subject of my interview. If you just let me finish the point. Uh, like if Mr. you let Miller me finish the you point. You don't get to ask your own questions. Okay, I'm going to finish the questions. Okay, and you answer them. I would like to point out to you, Lucy. And now, in our trawl of Sunday political shows, it's over to ITV, where they had since 1994 Jonathan Dimbleby, presented by. Jonathan Dimbleby. ITV's innovation was to add a studio audience to mix with the politicians. The topics debated were very much of their time. Tory hospital closures, Labour's tuition fees, and here they are discussing the MMR vaccine with an MP making one of his first appearances on TV. Um, you're being asked, well, very I... unlikely prospect, incidentally, you're being asked George Osborne to remove himself, re remove himself from the fray. Well, I just think, you know, this is, a, this is a conversation. The conversation we're having in this studio is a conversation that thousands of parents have around the kitchen table every morning. William Hague remembers it as being a time when politicians had to be prepared. Jonathan Dimbleby had a show where he did half an hour's interview and then a live audience asked questions for the other half hour. Those are much more challenging Sunday interviews than most of what we have today because the interviews are relatively short today. And I do think political discussion has lost something for losing the long-form interview on television. Dimbleby himself believes that having an audience gave his show an edge. We went to different places, so you've got different populations, if you like, coming to the programme. And, and I think that the politicians found that particularly testing. Some found it easier than others. Tony Blair was adept at handling an audience. i give you an example of someone who was much less adept at it, was the health secretary under John Major, Virginia Bottomley, who was, she, she, she was not a very good politician. And on another occasion, John Prescott was so put out about the line of questioning during one interview, he was still furious in the green room afterwards. And I said, would you like something to drink? I rather needed a glass of wine. And he said, yes. And he went, I went to pour him actually a glass of water. He, he took it and then he banged it down on the table and said, no, I shan't, and stalked out. And as he went out of the door, the civil servant looked at me and said, he will never come on your programme again. Not the role of a civil servant, incidentally, political advisor, different. And it is true, he never did come on the programme again. So back in the early noughties, with Labour riding high and the Tories wondering if they'd ever get back into power again, 
On Sunday mornings, it was a very crowded TV jungle. And as in any jungle, some thrive and some die. One show made so little impact, it was even forgotten about by its host, David Aronovich, who only remembered when we were reminiscing about his other programmes, including On The Record and Weekend World. But when On The Record was off for the summer, the BBC wanted another programme to fill the slot for what became the long-forgotten Think Tank. I'd kind of wiped out of my own history. This is going to be hard for you to believe, so I'm going to ask you to do a kind of suspension. Are you ready? I'm going to waft you back to the late 90s, 1997, 1998. And do you know who the big new thing on television and radio was? It was me. I know, I know, I know, I know. I did a bit of stint working on Newsnight. I did a few of those because they were trying out presenters, didn't get the job. I presented a, a couple of series of a programme about looking at television. They were very good, but they were too near the knuckle, so they abolished it. I did a books programme with Nigella Lawson before she got really famous. The only thing I did, I think I did three series of this. I think one of them or two of them were called Think Tank. They went out on Sunday at lunchtimes, and they were also political programmes, so we had politicians in. This was the early Blair government era, so a lot of what we were talking about was what the Labour government was doing. It was also a period when the opposition was absolutely in the doldrums. And one of the things, you know, it's one of the reasons I know that when you have a party with a big majority and an opposition in the doldrums, nobody cares what the opposition says. In the end, it was his TV skills that let him down. I do remember that the set for the third series involved walking down a flight of steps with no banisters while reading autocue. <laughs> it's not a thing people often try, you know. I mean, now I come to think about it, I think the editor always thought it was a friend of mine was actually trying to kill me. In the end, the whole programme was killed off and David isn't the only one who forgot that Think Tank even existed. The BBC did too and recycled the name in a quiz show presented by Bill Turnbull in 2016. new series where a regular cast of people from across the UK are on hand every day to help our three contestants. Next week on the Sunday shows at 50, we look at the extraordinary 17-year reign of Andrew Marr. Well, I'd always been very, very clear that I couldn't do TV, partly because I looked weird, you know, famously being described as the FA Cup in, in, in a shirt uh, and all of that stuff. I never, I, I honestly never thought I was end up on TV. And you can catch next week's episode Friday from 11 on Times Radio or here on the Red Box podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe to The Times. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.